0: You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. But I want to get into this week's passage because it is so important for how we understand what's going on in the Bible, and it has this idea with it of covenant. Now, there are many different types of covenants and ideas, but the one that I, I often think about is marriage, right? So the ring doesn't mean covenant, right? This isn't covenant. Some cultures don't even have rings. Uh, But covenant, this idea of people coming together, it is not a contract, right? Contracts are legally binding things that people might enter into. Uh, Covenants are are different. They take on a different type of significance uh, than just a legal document. Covenant goes, in a sense, deeper between two people. In Louisiana, uh, I don't know if Texas has this, but in Louisiana, uh, they have a thing called covenant marriage different than just your general marriage, they have a thing called covenant marriage where you have to spend extra uh, time in counseling, and you have to get, like, if I'm doing your wedding, I have to sign off that we went through certain sessions together, and essentially what that does is bind you into marriage more tightly so that getting out of it is that much more difficult. So, that, so Louisiana, Catholic culture, like, that's, that's a part of how we kind of build what we do, and so covenant marriage was, if you want to do a covenant marriage, you certainly can, and then the process of getting unmarried, so to speak, is just that much harder. Uh, so they recognized even then that idea of covenant. My, my thing, and actually I, we didn't do that, so um, we're not trying to get my marriage easily, but we didn't do that because I thought to myself, like, I don't think there's any more significant covenant that I can make than between Courtney and the Lord in that moment. So I don't need extra things to try and bind me, but I, I definitely understand why you would because our flesh is weak and we might need those moments to kind of be protectors for us in moments of bad decision-making that we all have. So it wasn't like a rejection of the idea. I actually really liked the idea, but just went, man, I, making a commitment to God is pretty significant. I don't really think I need to make another commitment kind of below that to the governing authorities in order to keep, the, keep that. But covenants are kind of everywhere. Um, we've talked about certain covenants in the Bible, and one of them might be like the Abrahamic covenant when, in Genesis chapter 12, where he speaks to Abraham and says, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you blessing, I'm going to give you a people. Um, and then in Acts, uh, Genesis chapter 15, where he actually, in kind of his own way, the Lord finishes that covenant process. And so then they had a sign of the covenant, a mark of the covenant being circumcision as a nation. Uh, The mosaic covenant, which some people call the old covenant, is that idea where God is entering into a relationship with his people where it's like, hey, you operate like this, I operate like that, and there's kind of this back and forth. Uh, We get into one today that I really like, which is the Davidic covenant, uh, which you might not have to use those words, but it's a specific way that God spoke to King David about what was going on, and he essentially promises this king. He promises King David a king. Now, remember where we were. Easter was last week, so if you are with us for Easter, you, we didn't hear anything about our reading plan. We were in Easter, which was thematically appropriate. But as we get into 1 first, uh, first Samuel, Second Samuel, we see this trajectory where King Saul is decreasing in influence and authority, and the anointed King David is increasing. And so you read through First uh, and Second Samuel, and you're going to see that kind of movement, that arc, where Saul is going in one direction, David's going in another, David's having success, Saul's having failure. The Lord said to Saul, we did this a couple weeks ago, I'm going to remove the kingdom from you, and I'm going to give it to somebody else, and he's doing all of those things, and then Saul dies. Interesting, if you're in our reading plan, he dies at the end, he falls on his sword, but doesn't completely die, and so then somebody else has to help finish him off, and who is it? You remember? it's an amalekite who did Saul not finish what God had said when we read in 1st Samuel 15 who did Saul not wipe out the amalekites so then what happens is that an amalekite gets the last moment in Saul's life and he shows up and Saul's like can you please kill me i couldn't finish the job right so we have this david David, the Amalekite goes and tells David, David's like, you can't kill the Lord's anointed. Kills the Amalekite, right? So then David is actually doing the work that Saul didn't do, right? Still doing the work Saul didn't do. That's a theme that you'll see in First and 2 Samuel is David doing the right things when Saul does the wrong things. So after Saul's death, David is anointed king. He's anointed king twice if you're reading that because kind of over one tribe and then over the people, right? So it's kind of his influence is growing. Uh, but in Second Samuel chapter 7, he has this important idea, and I'm just curious if we know why the Davidic covenant matters to Israel as a people. So we're going to get to covenant language, but there's some specific things we have to look at. First, we said this a few weeks ago, all the way back in Genesis 49, before David was even around. Okay, we're back to like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, And Jacob, blessing his sons there on his deathbed in Genesis 49.10, he speaks to one of his sons, Judah, and he says, this scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. There is no king yet. There is no scepter. Right now, it's just the sons and their families hanging out in Egypt. There's this spoken thing to Judah which will then become the tribe of Judah about a scepter, which is a, a signifies ruling, not departing from Judah. The ruler's staff from between his feet. Well, let's think about that. So somebody's sitting and they have their staff in their hand, the staff is kind of sitting between their feet. The scepter shall not depart. The, the ruler's staff from between his feet. So that was spoken of before David. We're way before David now. So, so that was spoken of before David. Then... Uh, we have other things. Like God gives his covenant. We have places in the Old Testament where prophets are looking back after David has disappeared off the scene. He's died. Now prophets still remember the promise given to David in Second Samuel 7, and they're bringing it back to light. So we look, for example, in the prophet Isaiah, it's kind of around 740 to 6. 80 BC, But in, for example, uh, Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, we read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, Jesse's David's dad, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Jesse's the father of David. David has died about 200 years before Isaiah wrote these words about somebody still coming from the line of David, somebody, a blessing coming that will branch out and bear fruit. We see in Isaiah 16, five, then established in steadfast on it, in faithfulness, and is swift to do righteousness. You need me to do something here, Derek? No, do you want me to grab that guy? Yes? Okay. All right, here we go. Full Furtick joke now, so this is going full Furtick with the mic in my hand. All right, so as we continue with that, Amos, another prophet, says this in Amos nine eleven, writing close to the same time as Isaiah, he prophesies, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and build it as in the days of old. Jeremiah, writing around 600 BC, so now we're after both of these guys in 23, 5, and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So you have to think, Genesis 49, we're going back in time, there was a statement by Jacob to his sons, the scepter shall not depart. There was a promise that we're going to get to, spoken to David, and then 200 years later there are still prophets going God's not done with David's house. He's not done building this. Somebody righteous is going to come. And so the covenant in the life of the people of Israel, the Davidic covenant was a specific way that they viewed how God was going to interact with them, how God was going to bless them, how God was going to lead them, and they were still looking for it. So that brings us to today's passage, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Remember, Saul's gone, David's king, And David has now, some time has passed, and we read in the first three verses that David has this desire to build a house for God. He wants to build God a house. He's like, it's time. Other surrounding nations had temples for their gods, they had places that they went, so David's going, I think we've had some peace, things have been good for us, it's now time to give our attention to our temple, the place for our God. This is this is, what, this is what we should do. So we read in 2 Samuel 7, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. We'll get to an interesting thing about that statement here in a moment. But he wants to build a house for God. Now, I love this because David is clueless about what God is about to do, which is how God works, right? Like, like we we try to conjure up God's blessing and when God's going to show up on the scenes, but it doesn't work. It never works for us to try and do something that then makes God gracious to us. And so God responds to David with incredible blessing. He responds to David with this incredible promise that David could not even fathom, couldn't even reach for, couldn't even look for, couldn't even do. And so what we have in the next few verses, the next paragraph, is God then going to David and giving a promise that David wants to build a house, but God's going to build an eternal house for David. So we start with David going, God needs a house. And then we get to God going, no, David's going to get a house. David's going to get a house. Now listen to this. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, it's going to be in the first few verses right now. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I was brought up out of Egypt, or uh, of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar, right? Like, so what God is saying here is... Listen, I've never needed a house. I know, I know you want to do that. I know you want to build me one, but I've never needed it. Have I ever asked for it? Have I ever been so whining and complaining that you think, I'm like, well, well, look at all these other gods. They have houses. God's going, while we came out of Egypt, while we did this, while we did that, I never spoke of it, and you know what? I never needed it my prestige in the nation is by what God has done, what he has done for them, not by this grand house that the people have built for him. So his salvation and his moving and his activity doesn't need a house. So He essentially goes back to David through Nathan and says, I don't need a house. Have I ever asked for this? Have I ever looked for this? Have I ever spoken about this? Is my power needed to have a house? No, it's not contained by anything like that. But there is a question I want to ask of you. You know, kind of reading verses 1 through 3 and 4 through 7. In verse 3, Nathan goes, go for it. And then in verse 4, God's like, go tell David not to do it. So, like, is Nathan, does he have to eat crow? Like, I'm always curious here. Did Nathan say to build the house or not to build the house? Like, what's he doing there? Because he's a prophet. And if you know about prophets, like, if you prophesy wrong, you're dead. And so, what did Nathan do? The text doesn't spend a lot of time, really any time, addressing it. And so, all we, all we are able to do is kind of go, okay, well, what do we see going on here? And the prophets who spoke in the Old Testament spoke in such a way that when the Lord came upon them, they would prophesy. What, it seems, what you seem to be reading about in verses 1 through 3 are essentially David and his buddy Nathan having a conversation, and Nathan not consulting the Lord and going, sounds like a good idea. Do it. Then the Lord speaks into the situation and says, No, 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 no. Like, this is not the, the good idea. So, it, it's not as if the prophets were always just sitting around, just anything that they spoke was just God, right? Like, anything was just flying out of their mouth, golden words of God. So, had Nathan consulted the Lord, what I would say is the Lord would have gone, David does not need to build me a house right now. Instead, he goes, Go for it. Then that night, God corrects Nathan, just kind of speaking doesn't consult the Lord. God corrects Nathan. And Nathan then, of course, has to go to David and be like, this is really what we've got to do. And so did, David, uh, or did Nathan, in a sense, misspeak? I, I don't think, I, I, he did not misprophesy. When the Lord spoke, he spoke. When the Lord said, tell this to David, he told it to David. In verse 3, when he said, yeah, sounds like a good idea. I think he was doing what you or I might do if somebody gives you their idea. And you go, that sounds great. That sounds great. Do it and then you spend a little more time thinking about it, you go, actually, that's not good at all. I take it back, bad idea. So we have Nathan saying to David from the Lord, don't go do this. And now listen to what God is to do here, because he takes David's little, little desire to build a house, and really from verse 8 through the first half of verse 11, we get to hear what God's going to do. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. As formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over all my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. And so what we have here is if God promises this eternal house, and he starts in those first four verses, 8 through 11, what is he saying? He shows his power to David. Look at what I have done for you. I took you from being a shepherd and I made you a prince, a leader of my people. I moved you from here and I brought you there. I gave you peace. Now we have to understand something about how the God is often speaking. Because we need to think about God's character, right? God is eternal. God is all-powerful. As God is speaking this, he's aware of what is coming. He's never unaware. And he's never not sovereign. And so when we read words in the Old Testament, we need to recognize that there are both near-term and long-term fulfillments of many of these statements and many of these prophecies. That in this instance yes that's true but as you explode it out and you see what God is doing it becomes true with different angles you do a cross-section of what's going on you go oh wait no there's more to it so yes did David receive peace absolutely but as you read the history of the nation you recognize that peace does not always exist for the people of Israel and then they go into exile And really after Solomon, the kingdom is divided and there's fighting and there's warring and there uh, is the northern captivity and there's the southern captivity and there's battling and there's indenture, there's servitude, slavery, there's all of those things going on. And so this statement is not true in that he always has had peace in the moment that he's saying that, yes, but there's also a much deeper way in which the Lord is going to bring peace to people and it comes through the one that God is bringing David did find peace, but long term, though, the whole nation, the whole people, they find peace through this leader about whom God is speaking. Now for us, I just want to remind us of what God is saying here, because look, when you listen to all the I statements, I took you from the pastor, this is a a I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. I have been with you whenever you go. I will make your name great. I will appoint a place for my people, Israel. I will plant them so that they will dwell. I appointed judges over my people. I will give rest from all your enemies. That our peace, our rest, our salvation, our hope, our joy, our station in life comes from God. It doesn't come from us. If you heard about a month ago, a month and a half ago, when Matt Akers was preaching uh, from Deuteronomy, and God says to his people, Do not forget. Because you're going to get there and you're going to get into the land and you're going to think everything's great, and then you're going to look back and go, Look what I did. And the Lord goes, No, 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 don't forget what I've done, because if you start to get proud of yourself and your accomplishments, and you're going to look back and go, Look what I did, you didn't do it. I did it. It's always the Lord who did it. And so, God, in that moment, is reminding David, look what I've done for you. And again, it is almost like this little slight. There is a temple that is built, certainly. Solomon builds a temple. But there's this little slight that comes, which is like, what do you think, David, that you can actually do for me that is better than what I can do for you? What is it that makes you think that you somehow build me a house and I'll be happy? Look what I have done. Look at what I am doing. So it's not like this angry, like, come on, little guy, what do you think? Because anytime, like, our kids bring us a picture, like, look what I drew. We're like, oh, that is awesome. That's like, like what we do when we go to God. Like, I finish a sermon. He's like, Acts 29 sermon was kind of bad, Hans. But, you know, high five. You're, you're great. I love you, right? Like, that's what you look for. And so it's the same kind of thing. So God's not to David going like, come on, little kid. Like, you don't know anything. But he's just highlighting, look what you want to do for me, but let's just stop for a second and realize what I do. And in fact, the only reason you can even be in a place where you can have a thought about whether or not you want to build a house is because of the peace that I have brought to you. The only reason you can be in this place and have this conversation with Nathan is because of the leadership position that I have given you. The only reason that you can even have the resources to consider buying me a house is because of all of the prosperity in this, uh, in this time that I have given to you. You have what you have because of me. You do what you do because of me. You move how you move because of me. What you receive and what you enjoy and what you love, you love because of what I have given. And it's a reminder to me and for us to never think that we did it. But a reminder to me to always go, no, God did it. God did it. When we're sitting around and we have our family around us or wherever it might be, or we're sitting here and we're just kind of content and our hearts are at ease. And we think it's because of how awesome we are, how good of planners we are, how much, you know, how we crushed the morning and got all our kids dressed and we got them here and everything's awesome and we're awesome. And the Lord's like, don't forget to be able to say, look what God did. Look what God did. It's always that change of perspective from us-centered to God-centered that we have to have. It's really always a work of of God. And so God says, thanks, but look what I'm going to do. You want to do something for me? Great. But look at what I want to do for you. Now, God does this in order to make his name great. But in making his name great, absolutely, David is a part of that. And David's line is a part of that. And so we look as we follow in verses 11b on to uh, the end of this paragraph when he says, Moreover, not only this, not only do you have everything that you have because of me now, but moreover, I'm going to do even more. I'm going to give even more. I'm going to bless even more. I'm going to highlight what I'm doing in this world even more than what you have already seen. Moreover, the Lord declares, the Lord will make you a house. Not a physical house. The Lord will make your house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's an important word as we read covenant language. Forever is a long time. A long time. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Hmm. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. There's that word again, forever, The idea. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David, which is another reminder when we go to verse 3. David's like, yeah, go for it. Well, then you get to verse 17 in accordance with all that God said Nathan spoke. Right? That's the important difference between the Nathan of verse 3 and the Nathan of verse 17. One is going, yeah, you tell me, God, I'm doing it. I'm saying it. So Nathan is delivering these words to David, and there is the promise of a king. The promise of a king. Now, remember as we read this that two things are going on, right? There's some things that David will probably be looking for immediately, but there's other things, like those words forever, that certainly aren't immediate. And so when David's hearing this, he might be hearing one thing, but the Lord might be intending both that and something else. That's the way God often works, isn't it? Like, oh, you thought it was just this, but actually, no. It's this too. You thought it was just here, but actually it's also here. You thought this was... The only way that it was going to be. But it's also this way. He expands. He grows. The vision gets greater. And so as God gives these promises to David about what he will do, I want to just go through a few of those. And rather than have me bouncing back and forth, and really rather, uh, you're just going to have to write these verse references down because I printed them out. Ha, ha, ha. I'm not going to flip back and forth, which is a really good thing because it would be hard to be doing it while I hold this mic. So I'm going to just give a couple of these statements, okay? A couple of the statements that we read here. I will give offspring after you. That's there in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down, I'll raise up offspring after you. Well, pretty clearly, David would have thought, yeah, my kids will also be kings. My, my lineage will also be kings, which would make sense. There will be offspring after you who will rule. But that idea that there will be offspring and that kingdom will be established, and it will be established forever, again, forever is a long time. I mean, I was talking to one of my kids this morning, and I was like, hey, do you like being here? He's like, sometimes, you know. It's just so long. I'm like, well, not that long, you know. It's an hour and a half, you know, start to finish, plus your commute, Forever is a long time. It might feel like forever for him. But then there's certain passages that we read in the New Testament. And we go, huh, look at what's going on. Because David had Solomon. Solomon had sons. Those sons continued on. But you read, for example, in Acts, and in Acts 13, 22 and 23, you read this statement. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, offspring after you, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So you can see how in the book of Acts, which is coming... After Jesus' ascension, after his resurrection, what we celebrated even yesterday, after all of that, they're looking back and going, remember that God said to David there would be offspring? And yes, David had offspring. But also look now at Jesus, the Savior of Israel. A kingdom forever, in verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 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 If I ask you this, just speaking in regards to what's going on in this world, does that type of kingdom, does that type of world currently exist? The forever aspect. Like, who's the Davidic king that is sitting around right now in 2019 there leading and ruling? There isn't one. There isn't one that's currently there. So, how in the world does forever work? How does that promise of forever work when we don't see a throne and we don't see? Well, there's a passage, for example, in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. You see how Jesus is associating himself with an eternal throne there? Not just that, though. Jesus will say phrases like this My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. The thing that you're looking for, the thing that you see, the way that I rule, it's not in a world that you think about. It doesn't happen in ways that you think about. Jesus talks about being a temple, destroy this temple. Right? King language, worship language. He uses these ideas. And so we begin to see this idea of what Jesus is going for. Interesting also in uh, verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7. I will be like a father to him. He will be a son. Well, there certainly is an idea in this era that like the kings and the rulers of God's people, they were close to God. But at the same time, father and son relationship is rather unique, isn't it? But if you read the book of Hebrews, and you're just in the first few verses, you read a phrase like this, in talking about how Jesus is greater than angels. We read the author, say this, For to which of the angels did God say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be my son. To what person does God say, I will be to you a father and you will be my son? And all of that in Hebrews is talking about Jesus. How Jesus is greater than the old covenant, how Jesus is greater than angels, how Jesus was greater than the sacrificial system, Jesus is greater every term. We sang it already. Jesus is better. And you might be thinking, well, he's not just better, he's the best. He's always you no, know. but, but like if you say if Jesus is better than everything, then clearly he is the best. Like It's not just like, well, he's just better here and he's not better there. He's always better. Something is always better, it's always best. And so Hebrews is setting up that argument. Jesus is better than this, Jesus is better than that, Jesus is better than that, in every single way. And he goes, which angel around here has God said of, you are my son, I'll be a father to you. Just Jesus gets that statement. Steadfast love in a throne forever. 15, 16, 17. My steadfast love will not depart from him, singular, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Well, look at Luke one thirty three. 33. Reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Hebrews 1.8, just a few verses after what we read, uh, previously read. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You reign forever. Now, you could have gone into many different places in the New Testament And seeing this but i just want to kind of remind you of what we've done so far so genesis 49 there's this promise given to judah david is from the tribe of judah promise given to judah the scepter shall not depart in second samuel 7 god says i know you want to build me a house but wait and see what i do i'm going to build you a house the prophets isaiah jeremiah amos they're looking for the fulfillment of this promise they look and see the previous kings that came from David and they go these guys don't fulfill what God said in the way that God said it there might be parts of it aspects of it things that they did that were good ways that God was with them but all of the things that God spoke to David don't happen in any one of his offspring that we have yet seen and so they're all of these statements looking for someone who is to come then what happens Jesus enters into the world And all the writing is now pointing back and going, look at this guy. And look at what he did. Look at what he's done. Look at how he reigns. Look at how he spoke. Look, look, look. Jesus is the Davidic king. Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the one that God was speaking about in 2 Samuel 7, that there would be a king who comes. But we are still awaiting the phrase the now and the not yet, the already and the not yet. We are still waiting for everything God spoke here to happen. For there to be peace. For there to be the throne. For there to be the rule. For the world to know the king. And so through the spirit Of Christ, we are able to be brought into what God has spoken and what God has promised, and we get to live that reality now while still looking for all that is to come. Because even then we can't we cannot say, Oh, everything has happened. Because God is speaking about a type of rule and a type of reign that none of us has yet to see. Not one person has seen. But we know that it's coming because we know who came, and it was Jesus. So talk about the first three verses now seem rather paltry, don't they? I want to build God a house. Yeah, okay, go for it. God's like, wait till you see what I do. Wait till you see what I build. So then David gets back from this. I just want to read his response because I love it. His response is his humble praise and a prayer. So he ends the chapter like this. And again, you can just read along. It's not going to be behind me. King David went in, sat before the Lord, and said, Who am I? Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant. Because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you. There is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name, and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed... for for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And then he moves to a request. And now, God, confirm forever the word you've spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, and do as you've spoken. Your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I'll build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Therefore, may it please you, to bless the house of your servant so that you may continue forever before you. It may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So he just starts with like, oh my gosh, who am I? Who am I that I would even be able to receive this? Who am I that you would do this for me? And in fact, this is like nothing to you. This is nothing. You could do this like that and yet you have found me, and you're doing this here in my life. And so his prayer is not anything other than, Lord, do the thing you said you were going to do. That's what he says. I like that In all of the prayer language that we kind of strip away, it right, just goes, just do those things. Do those things. I have nothing better to add here than to ask you just to be faithful to the things you said you would do. Humble praise and prayer. Now, here's the cool thing. What God spoke... In 2 Samuel 7, you, though you are Gentiles, right? I don't know of a person with a Jewish background in this room. If you do, great, high five. You're going to get it, you get it extra. But you are Gentiles. And yet we read in Ephesians 2, and we read in Ephesians 3, that through Christ, the Gentiles are brought in to what God was doing through Israel. The reason that we can sit here and enjoy the benefits of a relationship with God through the power of the Holy Spirit is because of the work of Jesus and that extension to all peoples. Who are we? Who are we? That what God spoke in 2 Samuel 7, we can benefit from because of the work of Jesus. But we can benefit from it. We have life because of it. We look for a king because of it. And so four words for us as we finish out. The first word is humility. And the same thing that struck David. Oh my gosh. I can't believe you've done this. I can't believe you have allowed for this to happen. That you've chosen me of all people. That he's chosen us of all people. That he has found us worthy of his salvation? No but that he has allowed for us to receive it. Through his grace and through his son, God brought us into what he is doing in the world. And so first, humility. Second, praise. Praise. Because we could not have conjured this up. And that's what I love. David just going, I couldn't have done this. There's no way I could have thought about this. There's no way that I could have seen this. There's no way that I could have planned this. You, Lord, are good. You, Lord, are glorious. You, Lord, are wonderful. You, Lord, are the one who have thought about this. It was not me. And so our humility before God, when we see what he's doing in this world, that we could go nowhere near it, and we see the work of his son, and we look back to him, and we just go, you're worthy. You're worthy. And very often I think the most eloquent prayers are the ones that are ineloquent. The ones where they're just kind of captured and captivated by what God has done and then just go Wow. You are awesome. Keep being awesome. Amen. Because that's what David does. Wow, you're awesome. Just just do that. Just keep doing that. Because you're good. Humility, praise, third word, third idea, submission. Because if we recognize through Jesus that we have life, then we recognize that there is someone in charge of our life. That there is one who knows best, and it is him, not us. He, Jesus, knows best. And so we live our lives surrendered to him, not just as these free agents within it but because we belong to him. So in keeping with the things you have declared, God, might I continue to follow after you and be with you. And then, fourth and final proclamation, the speaking of his goodness to others, because we are his ambassadors. That we are, because of the work of Jesus for us, brought in to a promise. And that we want the world to know. And we want the world to say, God is great. Look at what he has done. I could not make it better. If you gave me 10 million lifetimes, I could not make it better. So might we just declare his goodness, his praise as we worship, and his name to others who need to hear that they can have life because of the work of Jesus, the one who is coming back and reclaiming those who are His. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you have spoken, that there is a promised king that we see that King as Jesus, and we await his return, that he is our Lord, He is our Savior. Father, you are good. And so we, like David did, would just say keep doing the things you have spoken and said that you would do. Operate in keeping with your character and your word because you are faithful. May we never add to or take away from the things you have spoken but live our lives in accordance with it. And may our hearts cry with praise when we see what you have brought us into. We thank you for it.